0: I'm Corey McClagan, I'm the managing editor of the Texas Tribune, and on behalf of the Tribune, I'd like to welcome you to the seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival, and to what HBCUs mean for Texas. We have a fantastic panel today. On my left is Dr. Colette Pierce Burnett. She's the president of Houston Tillotson University, a private historically black school that is the oldest institution of higher education in Austin. She's the first woman to leave the university since Samuel Houston College and Tillotson College merged in 1952. Dr. Pierce Burnett is a graduate of The Ohio State University. She received her master's in administration from Georgia College and her doctorate in higher education administration from the University of Pennsylvania. Next, we have Dr. Michael Sorrell. He's the president of Paul Quinn College a private faith-based college in Dallas that was originally founded to educate freed slaves and their children. He's the only person to have been twice awarded the HBCU Male President of the Year Award, which he earned in 2012 and 2016. Dr. Sorrell is a graduate of Overland College, who received his law degree and master's in public policy from Duke and his doctorate in education from the University of Pennsylvania. Next, we have State Representative James White. He's a Republican from Hillister who represents five East Texas counties in the Texas House of Representatives. First elected in 2010, Representative White is now chairman of the House Committee on Corrections. He graduated with honors from Prairie View A&M University, which is a historically black public school that is part of the Texas A&M University system. He also holds a doctorate in political science from the University of Houston. And Representative White is a US Army veteran and a former public school teacher. And finally, we have Dr. Austin Lane, the president of Texas Southern University in Houston, a public school that is one of the largest historically black universities in the country. Dr. Lane is a graduate of Langston University, which is the only historically black university in Oklahoma. He also holds a Master's in Human Relations from the University of Oklahoma, and a Doctorate in Higher Education Administration from the University of Alabama. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you. Um, you. This event is going to be about an hour long, and will include about 15 minutes at the end for questions from the audience. There's microphones in the audience, as you can see. Um, Houston Tillotson University is going to be hosting a brief meet and greet with the panelists immediately after this panel. You're all invited. Uh, It's going to be in the lobby just outside this room. Um, Please silence your phones. For those who want to tweet, the hashtag is TribFest17. There are nine HBCUs in Texas. Some are public, some are private, some are faith-based. Among their graduates are members of Congress like the late Barbara Jordan and Mickey Leland, who both went to Texas Southern University, and members of the Texas legislature, like State Representative Tony Rose, who graduated from Paul Quinn, and Representative White, who's here with us today. Um, Dr. Lane, I want to start this conversation with you, and I know that one of the things that Texas Southern seeks to do is to provide access to higher education for students who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. So your students were already facing some challenges before a giant hurricane hit Texas. Um, Can you tell us a little bit how your students are doing following the flooding in Houston and what your university is doing to help?
1: Yeah, I uh, appreciate that question. Uh, For those that don't know, about 90% of our students rely on some form of financial aid Uh, About 70% of our students are first generation students uh, from very lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And so as you can imagine, um, when something like this hit hit our students, it not only impacts the students, uh, but it impacts their families. And Mm -hmm. so our students typically have the um, fortitude to always want to go back home and help. And so we immediately were a little worried about that because we thought, "Uh uh-oh, we would lose some students, and so uh, one of the things that we implemented on our campus was called TSU Cares, and it's an unrestricted fund that we immediately uh, put together to help those students and their families, uh, and so they wouldn't have to depart the university and go back home. No offense, Dr. Sorrell, we didn't want them going back to Dallas, <laughs> uh, going to Paul Quinn or anything like that, so we made sure we, you know, we kept them in Houston. Uh, And so that seemed to work uh, very well. But the uh, struggle continues. You know, our students are not out of the clear. There's still some families that are hurting um, from the hurricane. And so uh, fortunately, our enrollment today sits at about 10,550 students. That's up 20% for us. And so we're excited that, you know, our efforts at least were able to help students get there. We have a member, I think, here today from Texas Guarantee uh, you want to wave your hand? That's who I was talking to you earlier. He and his folks have helped us tremendously as well to reach out to students and again try and keep them in place and we appreciate the work you guys do there.
0: So there wasn't flooding on the campus, right, but it was more the students affected at their at their homes.
1: We actually have flooding on the, on the campus. Oh, did you? Okay. so I was talking to rip right here earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, our library, we had mm-hmm. flooding in our school of public affairs, our law school. Uh, pharmacy school Uh, you know we have some older infrastructure just on the campus and so uh, instead of just relying on our facilities guys who see it every day we Mm -hmm. we actually uh, engaged uh, an external group to really take a full look and scan of the campus and so uh, we're having to dig out there as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Well just hearing you talk about how you're sort of connecting to your community makes me think about the ways that that y'all schools are also connected to your communities and I know dr. Pierce Burnett when you first got to Austin um, you, you really you really have wanted to connect Houston Tillotson more to the to the greater Austin community when you first got here you said that uh, uber drivers didn't even necessarily know where HT was is that right that's correct <laughs> yeah so
2: I know now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. There you go. <laughs> Were you surprised by that? I was. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
3: I, um, I was surprised. I shouldn't have been as surprised because the Statesman had written an editorial right before I started um, saying that Houston Tillerson should face outward, its positioning to face mm. outward. So that, I think that was my first sign that the university had really been. Um, managing itself and not really engaged as much as it could be in the community Mm -hmm. and then it's you know it's a challenge because you have University of Texas right across the highway and everybody thinks thinks they want to be a Longhorn but they really want to be a Ram (laughs) <laughs> um, so um, so we've you know, we've been, uh, uh, my team and I have really been working hard and also to engage our students because uh-huh. a part of our selling point is that you'll be in Austin, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Austin is the city that most young people aspire to go to. Mm-hmm. So that's part of our selling point. So now we're really working hard. Our new student orientation, et cetera, had an engagement in Austin. Mm-hmm. And we're an honest broker in the conversations that are happening in East Austin around um the issues there in East Austin, and then we're really a jewel in the city of Austin. So we've been working really hard, and I've seen some really great strides towards making sure that people know, because we're the oldest institution of higher learning. Older and than I'll, the University of Texas? Older than yeah. the University Not of Texas. Not many people knew that. Older than the University of Texas, <laughs> <laughs> um, which, which speaks tremendous, which speaks volumes to the grit and resilience of the university.
0: Mm-hmm. And Dr. Sorrell, likewise, you also have been working to connect the university to the community in Dallas. Can you tell us about the the weekend program that you have in store?
4: Sure. So we actually started out um, much a similar path that Colette is talking about. Mm. Um, We believe that especially urban institutions should turn themselves outward and address the needs and the issues of the communities they serve. Uh, For us, that meant that Initially, we turned our football field into a farm because we were in a food yeah. desert, and no one seemed to be terribly concerned about that other than us. Uh, literally, we were closer to a garbage dump than we were a grocery store. Yeah. A uh,
0: football into a farm in Texas. In Texas. Okay, just I know, checking. I know.
4: listen, it was, thankfully, I was big enough to withstand the hits from my football team, right? <laughs> uh, but we thought that was important. Um, then we protested when the city wanted to turn the garbage dump into the largest garbage dump garbage dump in the southwest Mm. Um, then also we realized students couldn't afford to go to school so we created a new model of higher education it's the urban work college and we reduced our tuition and fees by ten thousand dollars and created a method for our students to graduate uh, in four years owing less than ten thousand dollars and now one of the things that we've seen is there is this belief that the way out of poverty is education that's absolutely true but we are asking families who have not been served well by the educational system to put trust in a system that served them poorly. Mm -hmm. And then we act as if we're surprised that we're not having 100% success with that. Mm -hmm. So what we thought was, why don't we disrupt the last negative experience that families had with the educational system? Mm -hmm. So we created something called the Weekend University. Mm -hmm. And this is a free program where we just ask people in the community, if you could spend two hours learning something, what would you like to learn? Mm-hmm. And what would it take for you to have two hours to spend learning mm-hmm. something? Now, full disclosure, I got this idea because at my alma mater, Oberlin College, we ran something called XCO, which was extracurricular offerings.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: More full disclosure, I never took a single XCO class.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay? I don't
4: know why I would want to take extra. I was you know, just dealing with what I had. Um, but the premise made sense to me. So we now are doing that, and we're just, we provide food, we provide daycare for folks to come in, and this isn't about getting you a degree. This is about changing your orientation, changing your personal narrative. Your children get to come in and see mama is on a college campus, daddy is a college student. Right? I mean, think about just how powerful that is. They witness that. Right, And then the parent changes because now they're like, I'm on a college campus. My last experience with education was a positive one. I consider it imperative to be a lifelong learner. So why wouldn't we spread that message with others as well? So that's just the latest of our attempts to turn ourselves outward and address the needs of the people we serve.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, And Representative White, um, can you talk to us a little bit about what it means to you to have attended an HBCU?
5: Well, thank you so much for that. And uh, let me just begin by saying uh, I appreciate this opportunity um, to visit with everyone today and uh, honored to represent the 170,000 Texans back home in those five counties. And I want to thank everyone out there for the love and compassion that you've shown us Mm -hmm. in southeast Texas during this very troubling time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that goes hand-in-hand hand with your question. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that um, you belong to a family a legacy, a family legacy mm-hmm. of, of institutions uh, that have given this state so much. Mm-hmm. You know, you began talking about Barbara Jordan. If it was not for Texas Southern, where would our country, where would our country be right now without that gift? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at the thousands of teachers... That are in our public schools today due to uh, the, uh, the uh, universities here, and definitely te- Texas Southern and Prairie View. Wh- where would our public school system be today without those educators? Mm-hmm. Um, and someone who earned his Army commission on a, um, at a H- HCBU, Prairie View Annum University, you know, where would our country be today without General Becton and mm-hmm. hundreds of other. Uh, black men and women uh, that have served and are still serving mm-hmm. as commission officers in, in, in our armed services, Army and Navy. So the idea of a family, of, uh, a, a legacy that has given this state so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Um, earlier this year, uh, President Trump invited presidents of HBCUs to the White House, and, and you were there, and, and you were also there, Dr. Lane. Dr. Lane, how did that go?
1: I uh, when I got the invite uh, I think the the biggest uh, decision was what are we going up there for Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, or at least the biggest thought for me was what are we going up there for and at the time it was because of the White House HBCU initiative was proposed to really move out of the Department of Education and into the White House Mm -hmm. and so uh, Our delegation went up really trying to get two things. Uh, It wasn't so much to talk at that time to the president, it was really uh, to get summer Pell back. We Mm -hmm. lost it in 2012, Uh, and that impacted at least all of our institutions that rely so heavily on Pell. Uh, Our students. Can you
0: explain what you mean by that? So previously, you weren't able to get a Pell grant over the summer. Over the summer. Mm -hmm.
1: So that was, was. taken away at that time in 2012. And so we went up in a, on a, in a selfish way uh, to really try and advocate to get the Summer Pell to return mm-hmm. because we knew that would help our students with their persistence, with their graduation. And so uh, we actually were successful in that. The other was to uh, really have Title III funded the way it should be, particularly for HBCUs. And so that continues. That's the dialogue that we actually just had a few days ago uh, back up in Washington. I just got back from Washington mm-hmm. yesterday.
0: What
1: is Title III? Uh, so we have funds that really supplement. Uh, they're grant funds that uh, come from the Department of Ed, mm-hmm. but they supplement funding for the university. And so we have a lot of our uh, programs that are tied to Title III dollars, mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're very, uh, for us, You know, they're not state dollars, they're dollars that we really depend on to help Mm -hmm. our academic programs, uh, to support our students, particularly those that may be in uh, STEM areas or underrepresented areas, Mm -hmm. and so we rely heavily on that. Mm -hmm. So I think the, uh, the, the problem with that meeting is that there was no real agenda, and we didn't get much accomplished other than really our points that we wanted to push through, and the Summer Pell was successful but uh overall when we this time around, I actually decided not to attend because uh, I did not see a very clear agenda. I didn't know what we were trying to accomplish, and so um this go round, I decided just not to go uh, mm-hmm. it's except for the Congressional black caucus meetings was on a panel there as well but uh you know, I think uh, for our institutions, it's just critical that we at least know if we're going to be talking in Washington, what are we talking about and what mm-hmm. do we expect to get mm-hmm. from it. Dr.
0: Pierce Burnett, what was your experience at that White House meeting?
3: I have two answers to that. One, as um, Colette Pierce Burnett, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, and being in the Oval Office, irrespective of who's in the office, that was an experience. Mm-hmm. As the president of um, Houston Tillerson University, I had the exact same reaction. We had an agenda of things that we want to accomplish. We were really in between a rock and a hard spot because a good portion of our revenues at the university come from federal dollars. Mm-hmm. So you're going to advocate for those dollars because Title III is is to strengthen our institutions. Mm-hmm. So as a president, my role is to find revenues and avenues to strengthen my institution, mm-hmm. and a good portion of that comes from the federal government. Mm-hmm. So to be invited to Washington to to voice that and to be a part of that conversation was very important, and it felt. Um, you know, when you go there with a very big agenda, you want to walk away with very big things. Mm-hmm. And we walked away with promises um, that are yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. So the White House HBCU initiative was moved under um, into the White House from the Department of Education. Um, we, need, we need investments in our infrastructure mm-hmm. because most of us are over 130, 40 years old. So that infrastructure is over 140, 30 years old and right now there's an hbcu loan program but not a grant investment program mm-hmm. so we were advocating for that so i didn't walk away feeling really powerful that that something great was going to happen i didn't walk away feeling that nothing was going to happen so we're somewhere in between and the, the proof is in the pudding we mm-hmm. still have to see and now that uh, you know someone has been named um we have to wait and give that individual an opportunity and support You're talking individual. about Jonathan
0: Holyfield, yeah. the new right. head of the White House Initiative mm-hmm. on HBCUs. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. he has been criticized a bit for not having uh, direct experience with HBCUs. That's correct. What, what do y'all think of his appointment? Uh, any mean, of
4: you? You know, I, I would just say this: I didn't have any direct experience. With HBCUs. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's working out okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I
3: I would say the same thing. I didn't have any direct experience with HBCUs other than the fact that I was married to an HBCU graduate. That doesn't mean that I'm married to a pilot. (laughs) I didn't know how to fly the plane. (laughs) Um, So I think that's a misnomer, and I think we need to give the individual an opportunity, and we need to support him and work for them because that's who has been named. So I feel very strongly that we have to uplift that person because that's what we tend to do to each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see, want us to us to do that in this case.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, think we, I think we have to be fair. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, look, we can have enormous issues with the way in which the Trump presidency conducts itself. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think we do. Um, but I think that to have a person in the office you give him an opportunity to do the job especially since it was a difficult position to fill not very many people wanted the job mm-hmm. right so you know but again you know great things can come from people that are in places that they weren't the first or second choices like it matters what you do in the position he will be judged by that mm-hmm. and the expectation is he will live up to our expectations
0: mm-hmm. And then we're we're talking about what HBCUs need from the federal government. What what do they need from the legislature, Representative
4: White? Well,
5: thank you so much for that. I think right now in this immediate um, scenario we're we're in, uh, when we're looking at Harvey, Mm
2: -hmm.
5: um, doing a real good um, assessment of the plant and infrastructure needs uh, our universities will need. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, um, talking to my colleague to the south, geographically to the south of me, uh, Representative Phelan, uh, he has three or four institutions uh, anchored there with mm-hmm. Lamar University, and there was always a concern, I believe as the president here identified, that such, a, such an acute disaster mm-hmm. <clears throat> that we experience, would those students come back? Okay, mm-hmm. so from the most part we're seeing that, but we want to watch that because if there is a precipitous drop, Uh, we want to make sure that we can account for that in the funding formulas Mm -hmm. until everything uh, settles out. I think it's very important for the legislature to always take a deep breath and look at the metrics that we apply to every university, Mm -hmm. and especially to HBCUs. The idea that um, uh, I think ultimately what I hear on this panel, all three of these great academics have said and I've gotten is that they've got into their positions to return value. So first of all, whether you're University of Texas or Prairie View A&M University, uh, as a legislator, I want to know what value are you returning to the community and more broadly to the taxpayers of this state? Mm-hmm. Because regardless if you are a graduate of Prairie View or Texas A&M or you are just a, um, a, a let's say, just a, or you're a logger and Newton Tex Newton County, the idea is that these universities, especially the public ones, belong to the taxpayers. They belong to that logger as well as to uh, the the, the gentleman that's a PhD. So we want to make sure as we're measuring folks, as we're evaluating the value they return back to the state, that it is relative to their situation
2: Mm -hmm. in this state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Of course. I'd like to add, um, Texas has that 60 by 30. Mm-hmm. We want 60% of your population, we want 60% of our population to be educated by 2030. That population are people of color and um, people of low socio- socioeconomic situations mm-hmm. because. um, Percentage-wise, most wealthy white people are already sending their students, Mm -hmm. their children to school. Mm -hmm. Um, Middle-class, most people are sending their children to school. So, so to increase percentage-wise, that's the population you need to 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 reach. Mm -hmm. So, we need to send congruent, similar messages. Um, We have the Texas Equalization Grant here, which is to help equalize tuition for private schools because we want students to have a choice Mm -hmm. in where they go to college. So, if we cut things like Texas Equalization Grant, you are sending a mixed message. Which was done. Which, e- was which was, done was, in right, which was done. Mm-hmm. right. You're sending a mixed message as to whether you want to really have your population, 60% of your population, have some form of, of education after um, K-12 experience by the year 2030, mm-hmm. statistically. And this is a goal from
0: the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board that you're referring to? Right. From the to. state, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. What, Dr. Sorrell, what do you need from the state
4: that you're not getting. Um, well, I think it's additional resources, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think it's it is an investment that allows institutions to evolve. Um, I think that one of the things that the state is good about is looking at possibilities, right? But but this is about how do you create the ability for institutions to evolve to meet the demands of the state and recognizing that not every student thrives. In a 55,000 person institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you come from, if you're a first-generation college student, maybe you need a place where people engage with you a little bit differently.
0: How many
4: students at Parkland? Well, I mean, we're small. We are 521. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've grown 250% in the last six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're now hamstrung by the fact that we don't have enough space on the campus to you know, accept all the students who want to come. We're becoming a selective institution because we don't have space. We've rejected 40% of our applicants the last couple of
3: years. We have a 1,000 mm-hmm. students, and I got a text message from one of my student leaders that was that's here at the Texas at the festival today. We had several, several of our students come, and he said, I can't wait to get back to campus. There's too many people here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's real. Um, that's, that's real. real. Yeah. That's Some real. People, so yeah. their, their experience is to be in a smaller, nurturing environment mm-hmm. where um it's more familial. It's um, their structure, mm-hmm. and it's just opportunity. And even HBCUs, we're not monolithic. Every school up here, represented right. up here, is very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's a positive. So you're mm-hmm. selling your selling points for your institution.
0: Mm-hmm. Doctor Lane, when you got to Texas Southern, the, the school was really struggling with declining enrollment, and you've been you've been working on that. And... In your outreach to potential students, you're going beyond just African-American students, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the um, efforts you're doing to increase enrollment?
1: Yeah, so when I came on board, I came from one of the largest community college systems in the country at Mm -hmm. Lone Star College. I was the president of Lone Star College, Montgomery, in the Woodlands, then became executive vice chancellor. And the first thing that I knew we needed to do was form some real articulation agreements with our community college systems, particularly Lone Star, Houston Community College, San Jacinto. And we established, established that almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any given time, those institutions I just mentioned have on an average about 200-some-odd thousand students that are ready and willing to transfer. And so we wanted to take a bite out of that, and our spring enrollment went up immediately about 6% when we did that. Uh, this fall, as I mentioned, we've got the largest freshman class in the history of the university, of, of about maybe 21, 2,200 freshmen that came in the door. Uh, we're at 10,500 uh, students. And really our goal, depending, you know, look at where we are. We're in the fourth largest city uh, in the country, we have one of the most diverse ISDs in our backyard. Uh, you know we're strategically looking at uh, areas that have high concentration of not only African American but Hispanic students. so you know we're in Dallas uh, we're out in the Golden Triangle we're in Louisiana we're in Austin a lot of students this year from Pflugerville, a lot of students from uh, Hendrickson, a lot of students from uh, LBJ, uh, Reagan and so we're, we're targeting, uh, just because of the minority populations, African-American and Hispanic, uh, to really increase our enrollment by 2020, realistically, uh, you know, we should at least be at about 15,000 students. Yeah. And so that's, that's our aggressive plan to try and get there strategically with some enrollment management efforts. But uh, if you look at our law school,
2: mm-hmm. you, know,
1: you look at our pharmacy school, the minority population, it switches. So you have more Caucasian, you have more Asian uh, you have more Hispanic, I mean, a lot of students um, you know, from South Texas that are coming up uh, for our law school, mm-hmm. and so uh, we take great pride in the diversity that we're starting to see in our institution. Um, we're only right now 75 percent African American, and that number decreases. It seems like about every uh, you know every semester, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, other areas are increasing, and so. Uh, we're pretty proud of the diversity always holding true still to our HBCU uh, mission.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, the, the reality of it is the only way that you remain a non-diverse institution in Texas is if you try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right? I mean, like, you have to make mm-hmm. a commitment to excluding people for it not to occur. I mm-hmm. mean, we we're... To your point we're 75 percent black now mm-hmm. right 23 percent of our population is Latino
2: mm-hmm.
4: not because we tried because we just said this is who we are these are our values if this appeals mm-hmm. to you you are welcome here
2: mm-hmm.
4: and we have found that you know it creates a wonderfully engaged and thriving community to have different perspectives and experiences mm-hmm. but you would have to exclude people I mean, literally, ex- say no. You cannot come
2: mm-hmm.
4: for you not to become a more diverse institution in the state.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And HBCUs never discriminated. That's exactly right. Their doors have always been open to everyone mm-hmm. um, by nature of what they were, the principles that they were founded on. Mm-hmm. And the face of the traditionally underserved has changed in the nation, mm-hmm. or is changing in the nation. So naturally, your student body is going to evolve. Staying true to your roots, I'm very proud to be a historically black college of mm-hmm. university. I mean, I'm not a blackstone college university. You're the whole. You become industry. synonymous. You so. the whole No, I have a lot of people behind. Me. <laughs> yes. Um, but I mean, we're proud of those roots. Mm-hmm.
0: And Dr. Piers Burnett, one thing that you've really tried to do is connect students with opportunities that um, students of color have not traditionally been represented in. So whether it's the tech different tech industries or even the rodeo. You have uh, connected students with different opportunities. Can you tell us a little bit about that work that you're doing?
3: It's very exciting. My undergrad degree is in engineering, Uh so I have an affinity for um, um, when... I, it frustrates me when people say we can't find people of color to hire. That's mm-hmm. People hide behind that. Mm. It's what Michael was saying earlier. You're not looking. You're intentionally not looking. Mm-hmm. So we have a new tagline at the university called hashtag I am the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And we're in being very intrusive and intentional to connect our students with spaces that have been non-traditional to them, particularly in the STEM fields. Because a liberal arts major comes out with a real strong sense of values we, we we push our core values down into everything that we do on the campus in the classroom and outside of the classroom so to have a technical person with a liberal arts education is really a win-win for anyone when i was in when i was in the industry when i was corporate <coughs> to hire someone that has passion for the mission um understands work ethic mm-hmm. um, embraces diversity all the things we talk about leadership accountability That's really a good hire. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get the techie stuff, it really is, especially when you have a campus of um, geniuses that are hungry for education. Mm -hmm. So we received a grant from the United Negro College Fund for a million dollars for five years, um, and $200,000 for five years, and it's called Career Pathways Initiative. Mm -hmm. And we're taking our science students, our communication students, and some other career fields, kinesiology, and we're wrapping them up with career language from the moment because before they're pre freshman all the way to their senior year so they get a mentor um, they go to different things on social skills soft skills hard skills etc mm-hmm. and it's a really exciting program we just brought our first cohort in and these young people are um, they're thirsty for mm-hmm. knowledge and they want to be a blah so we're showing you them what a blah really is um, like right now so you want to be sure that that's exactly what you want to do. So by the time you're matriculated to your senior year, you've had internships, you've had all kinds of things. And our partners from um, the, the rodeo all the way to KUT, the public radio station here, is really it's a very exciting time. Mm-hmm. It's something that I wish I had had an opportunity to do when I was, when I was coming to the
0: mm-hmm.
2: school.
0: And Representative White, how yes, do you ma'am. see uh, students from HBCU sort of fitting into the needs of Texas in the future in terms of the economy of the state?
5: Well, uh, how they you know I would go a little bit further than how they fit. Uh, mm-hmm. How they fit. Uh, we, you know, when you look at the Prairie View and University, uh, engineering,
2: mm-hmm. nursing, mm-hmm.
5: teachers, it's not. It's just not fitting. It is serving the needs of this um, of the state
2: mm-hmm.
5: uh, and uh, of our country. So, uh, as our HBCUs continue mm-hmm. to do the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And we need, this, we need them to do this work. Um, we're told, as a nice lady here said, we're told how we're needing so many uh, folks in STEM. Uh, we need people in the medical sciences. Um, I don't know if we need very many people to be officers anymore. I'm, I'm always wondering, Army officers anymore. But we're told we, we have these needs. Well, I
4: think we probably do. <laughs> okay, all
5: right. All right, I hope so. But, mm-hmm. but, but, but it's the idea that these are needs of the state, uh, we need to make sure that these institutions remain viable so they can continue serving these these needs that we, we have.
3: Mm-hmm. I, think with, I think it's needed even more um, mm-hmm. than, than ever in modern history. The military is actually a, a phenomenal example. Um, my husband was an Air, Air Force officer, and the majority – of Air Force officers went to HBCUs mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And that was, of course, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and the nation relaxed on that.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: now we are partnered here with the ROTC units here, Navy, Army, and Air Force. And I have several ROTC students on my campus because the um, Armed Services recognize that they have to diversify their forces in order for them to stay strong.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And there is a pool of young talent, young people, to be into, to go into ROTC. Reserve Officer Training Corps, right with HBCUs. Mm-hmm. So even the middle class was built by HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Um, a good portion of public school teachers, which I think someone yes. said earlier, um, a good portion of um, social workers, um, the criminal justice individuals, the majority went to HBCUs. Not, I'm current the the middle class perspective. Mm-hmm.
4: But I mean, think think about it from this perspective. We are in an era of increasing diversity you look across the landscape and the demographics are crystal clear. Mm-hmm. So how do you purport to, to adjust to that by disinvesting in the institutions mm-hmm. which sure. built that,
2: mm-hmm.
4: right? I mean, so the, the reality of it is you, you cannot go very deep into middle-class African-American life and not find HBCU graduates. Mm -hmm. I am the only person in my family that did not attend an HBCU, Mm -hmm. like that went to college that did not attend one. Mm -hmm. My wife's family, everybody went, right? Including she went to Spelman. Mm -hmm. So these are institutions that prepare students exceptionally well. You cannot argue with that model, Mm -hmm. right? So if anything, it needs to be invested in at a higher level, Mm -hmm. not um, one that questions it
2: yeah
5: and and i think one of the themes here is that these institutions and obviously i'm a product right these institutions have a history a proven history proven record of being able to reach down and pick some meet reach down and meet someone at the level they happen to be at at a, at a certain period of time and bringing them
4: up but i, yeah, I want yeah. to challenge it for just one yeah. second Go because ahead. i think we, we talk about that all the time okay. about reaching down okay we also reach up. Okay, I get right? that. So okay. it's, it's not just the students okay. who didn't have anywhere else to go. Mm-hmm. We are competitive and do an extraordinary job with gifted students mm-hmm. as well. The genius, mm-hmm. to borrow you all's tagline, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The genius Borrowing of Borrowing my tagline. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Because we're nation building here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the, which is our tagline. So the, the reality of it is, HBCUs do a better job of reaching up and reaching down and blending and creating a society. Right? Like it's easy to say we're just gonna take students with 30s on the ACTs and whose families do well. But the beauty of the magic of our institutions mm-hmm. is we take everybody and make them better. And
5: and so if I, if I could finish. So <laughs> so 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 I just had so to correct the narrative. You're, you're right, right. Well, um, but but the point is there are gems that are often missed. No question. Okay. And um, uh, HBCUs have the, the record, and really what I was leading to is that uh, when we look at this juncture in our state's history, it is very critical with the number of young people uh, that are uh, of, of color. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we need to get them across the finish line. You've talked about the 60 by 30. Mm -hmm. Um, I look at our HBCUs as a force multiplier in doing that because they have have a record in knowing how to do it Mm -hmm. and do it very well Mm -hmm. and efficiently.
1: I think that to add to that point, Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at uh, the graduation uh, of students at UT or uh, UT and A&M combined, Mm Uh, On any given May commencement ceremony, we're going to turn out more graduates, in some cases, African-American graduates in both those institutions combined. Mm. So when you talk about 60 by 30 and we're the next generation of, if you want a diverse workforce, Mm -hmm. if you want to know where African-American or Hispanic students are going to come from, most likely, especially in urban environments, they're going to come from HBCUs. In some cases, they're going to come from the community college system. Mm -hmm. A lot of minority students within the community college system. So Mm -hmm. you're going to have that. I think one thing, though, that um, at least during my time at TSU, uh, we have to be much more strategic. We can't just keep saying that because we're an HBCU, students of color are going to show up.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Our students, minority students, high-achieving, mid-level, low-level, they all still have options. And I tell my folks all the time they have options. Mm-hmm. Right? They can go other places. We can't sit and wait and think that they're going to come to our institution just because we have this history
2: mm-hmm. that's
1: out there. I mean, that's and so we were lucky, and thanks to the rep, we spent more time in his office, uh, really telling our our, our uh, plans strategically about what we were uh, set up to do, right? And mm-hmm. what we needed, and so. Uh, This year in the session, we were very fortunate in that we were held harmless. Thank you. We were held harmless um, in terms of our enrollment and everything else, and it was starting to to show an increase. But also, we increased our dollars in some very key areas, and Mm -hmm. that hadn't happened for our institution in several years, several sessions. And Mm -hmm. so the biggest piece for both our institution, Prairie View A&M, and for Texas Southern is that we received academic development initiative dollars TSU receives $25 million, and Prairie View receives $25 million. This year was the first year that those dollars are not in the special item dollars. In the, in That's right. The they're budget. in our base budget. Base mm-hmm. budget. That's huge for mm-hmm. us. That's a commitment. So mm-hmm. we appreciate and applaud uh, all of our legislators who, who made that happen. Going forward, though, we have some real challenges to address with Special items in this state, and what that means if they go away mm. for institutions like Texas Southern. So, here's a shameless plug there are only four independent schools that are not tied to systems in this state one is Texas Southern, the other is Stephen F. Austin, Texas Women's, and Midwestern State. We're mm. the remaining four institutions that are not tied to any state or system, mm-hmm. like the ANIM system or UT system. And our argument is that our special items really fuel our academic programs. Uh, We don't have uh, dollars that we're just playing around with. And so if you reduce, you know, my $6 million in special items, uh, that impacts faculty, it impacts staff, and it impacts academic programs, which, again, are all counterproductive, right? They're very counterproductive to what you heard all the panelists talk about things that go away that are supposed to be there to help increase mm-hmm. uh, the things that we're trying to do to help with the economy going mm-hmm. forward. And so uh, we appreciate the, the efforts that are being made, mm-hmm. um, but there's always more to do, and, and strategically, there's always more to do for our institutions going mm-hmm. forward.
0: So I just want to tell the audience that we're going to go to questions in just a couple of minutes. So if you have a question or you want to be thinking of one, you might want to make your way to the microphone. Um, and then meanwhile, Dr. Sorrell, I wanted to ask you, um, has the role of HBCUs changed at all in this era that we're living in right now, this era of um, arguments over Confederate statues and a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville? Is there, is there a different purpose for HBCUs now?
4: Well, I think, if anything, we've tapped back into the original purpose mm. of HBCUs, mm-hmm. um, we were institutions that were founded to give people who needed a way out a way out, mm-hmm. right? To to develop communities. Um, that need hasn't changed. That that need hasn't gone away. Now, you know, the difference today than anything else is it's not solely defined as a black need,
2: mm-hmm.
4: right? I mean, but our communities need. Leaders that have been nurtured in environments that believe in them unapologetically, Mm -hmm. uh, that don't view them as students who are anything other than capable of competing at the highest level. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: I I think that there's real value in that. But I also think, you know, really to to Austin's point, I mean, listen, it can't just be because we're HBCUs, Mm
2: -hmm. right?
4: Like that, I mean... We are we're incredibly proud of that legacy. Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. right? We view ourselves as you know, an urban institution that goes into the inner cities of our country, pulls out students. And 40, over 40% of our students come from outside the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so increasingly, we're pulling students from all over the country and teaching them how to affect change in their communities, mm-hmm. how to be leaders in those communities. Mm-hmm. That is going to be a timeless skill Mm -hmm. period.
3: One quick point. Um, Our schools are an investment, not a charity. Mm -hmm. That's why I think um, college presidents, particularly university presidents, are very sensitive to language. Mm. Um, People equate, you cannot equate being poor with being smart. Mm. So I don't see it as um, that I'm Bringing students to my campus that are less than by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, they need an opportunity, mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity that has been traditionally <clears throat> denied them. Mm-hmm. And it's not all students that fall in that category, but there are some students that fall in that category that are gyms. They don't test well, um, they didn't have a good K 12 experience for whatever reason, so we're almost punished for the population that we serve. Mm-hmm. And I think. To switch that narrative around and to to get people to see that we are an investment in the future of the globe, particularly this nation, to make the nation strong, I really mm-hmm. want to emphasize that because often I sit on panels where we talk about why do we still need hbcus no one 's questioning why we still need. Majority UT. institutions are Catholic institutions or mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. female institutions. Mm-hmm. So instead of putting us in a position to justify, the merit, justify our existence, let's have a different conversation to t- how we can talk about the things that we talked about earlier to keep, get people to see that we are an investment for growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, my institution was founded 10 years after Juneteenth. Mm. So that means that in 1865, Texas, we found out that we were free. Ten years later, 1875, people found an institution to teach people. Mm. And we're still doing that. And we've improved that tremendously over 142 years. Mm. That, to me, is an investment.
6: Every
4: rose doesn't bloom on the first day of
0: mm-hmm.
6: That's right.
0: <laughs> Let's let the audience ask a couple of questions. Go ahead.
6: Good afternoon. My name is Michael Birch. I work for College Forward here in Austin. Um, we serve, uh, we're a nonprofit that serves low-income, first-generation college students all around the state and around the nation, really. And uh, in many cases, these are students of color. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys on uh, about the disparity between graduation percentages among white students versus students that are low socioeconomic people of color. Um, there is a disparity, and it and it's, it's growing, I think, in some cases. And when you also consider that this population in many cases is the fastest growing population certainly here in Texas and in the United States, what do institutions of higher education, including you and and other institutions, what do we need to do to serve this population better? Here's what
1: i, I take a stab at that. Uh, here's what I found when I came in, uh, is that roughly over a six-year period of about twenty-two percent of our students are graduating and on a four year scale that was about five to six percent. And I think immediately I thought, well, you know, what, what's going on here and, and what should be done about it. And what I found when we dug into the data a little bit, we found that not all of our students were dropping out, but our students were stopping out. Right. So there were some financial gaps that mm-hmm. students could not fill. Uh, whether it be after the freshman year, and these were students academically when we ran the data, were doing just fine. You know, they were doing fine and on schedule. They were progressing the 30, the 60, but they were were stopping out because they didn't have the funds uh, mm-hmm. to be able to to get to the next semester. Or in some cases, even this right now, we're working with students through our uh, funds that we raise for scholarships to actually pay for their last semester. Because these are students who are just 15 hours away mm-hmm. right? that just say, well, you know, I'm going to have to leave and go and work some more mm-hmm. and then come and pay this off. So I think we have to do a better job then in fundraising, but most importantly in, in the pathway. So we, we're we on a project now with uh, Houston GPS. It's with the University of Houston and several other schools in the Houston area. And you probably know about this. And we're a partner in there to help ensure that the pathways for students to get from orientation to graduation are actually there right and so students don't wander around and get off track and go everywhere else uh, the other part that we're trying to deal with is students who transfer it's not enough just to transfer hours but we want those hours applied to a degree right so student doesn't finish with an average of 160 hours it only takes 120 students are leaving community college with 90 hours it only takes 60. So there's some things internally that we're we're trying to do that we think is really going to help move those rates to where they ought to be, even with the financial gap, because we'll raise money and do other things to get them there. But there's just some things that we have to do in-house to make those numbers look better to get them in the workforce and to have them be those alums that give back. Can I? Oh, go
3: ahead. In addition to the financial gap, and part of that lobbying for the year-round Pell was to address that kind of, yeah. that kind of thing, yeah. and having a last-mile campaign to get your seniors actually to graduation because they may run out of their financial aid, the academic component of that is very important that you wrap all kinds of services around your students Mm -hmm. to help them excel academically. And that's really a confidence builder, Mm -hmm. that you can do this. Mm -hmm. You have it in you. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't let anybody tell you, because maybe part of your life people were telling you, you couldn't be a scientist, you couldn't be a mathematician, Mm -hmm. um, you couldn't be a biologist. So it's having those um, math and English are the most complicated. So you get students through their basic math, their basic English. And then another thing. um, Get, bring students in. Students come in and you're, they don't have to take upper level math and mm-hmm. there's all kind of data that shows that irrespective of what you're going to major in you have to have above mm-hmm. college algebra um, coming into coming mm-hmm. into college. So to encourage legislators to think through that mm-hmm. and to um, have students opt out of math as opposed to having to opt in. Mm-hmm. So you bring students that are college-ready coming in, and those that aren't college-ready, you work very hard that you have special um, special opportunities for them to be able to up their academics.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And, I, and I just want to add very quickly, um, we have found that a big portion of the issue is in non-academic and non-purely academic and non purely uh, financial for school purpose reasons, right? It's wraparound services about life, mm-hmm. okay? The margin of error that mm-hmm. students who come from Pell Grant conditions, I mean, annually our, student, our Pell Grant number hovers around 90%. Mm-hmm. 70% of those students get zero expected family contributions. We're having to coach students through just life things. My brother got shot I can't afford to go home to see him. Mm -hmm. My grandmother died. There's no we can't pay for the funeral, so I've got to go home and work. I mean, you know, my this actually happened. One of my scholars, my uncle was shot, and he doesn't have a gravestone. I mean, things that that, Mm -hmm. I mean those aren't that's life. Mm Right? But we have to support them in ways that don't make them feel judged by what they don't have the ability to afford. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why we stopped charging for textbooks and mm-hmm. stopped using textbooks, because we were creating you know, a class system or a mm-hmm. caste system from those who could afford textbooks and those who couldn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because they didn't want to learn, but if you have to make a choice between whether or not mom keeps the lights on and whether you read about Chaucer... Chaucer's gonna lose every single time. <laughs>
3: and you and you can't wrap so.
2: <laughs>
3: and you can't wrap those things up into a graduation rate. Mm-hmm. Like that's right. not a measurable metric.
0: Right. Can we go to the question in the back?
7: Hello, how are you doing today?
0: How are you doing there?
7: So my, my name is Henry Kakula. I actually graduated from the University of Texas. I'm from Houston. I actually I'm the CEO of 4.0 GPA LLC and we help at-risk students graduate from college within four years. So the question is that I have today, understanding that only 21% of students from first-generation low-income backgrounds graduate from college within six years. What can the ISD and school systems do to help students graduate from college and be prepared for college within the next four years, but what can they do inside of their curriculum and change to make sure students are prepared to go to schools like HT and TSU and graduate within four years.
4: Wait, can we get to Paul Quinn too? How are you just going to? Exercise? Yeah,
7: that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Representative that's right. White, okay. do you want to take that one oh.
0: since you were? Yeah, a, and, a and I
7: want to say uh, shout out to TSU since I'm from Houston hey. and I love the experience there too. All
1: right, thank
5: you.
2: Great, thank you. So well,
5: much. thank you for that question and thank you for your work. Um, I think what from from a policy perspective, and I, I am a supporter. Uh, we've voted for these bills in the in the legislature. Uh, we've ensured that these programs remain funded, uh, and we need to do incredibly more. And in that realm, I'm talking about um, pre-K. Now, I, I know that's very interesting. Here, we're talking about you know graduate school and undergraduate school, uh-huh. but the but the idea is that we have to get our students K through 12 started earlier at a more a more quality start earlier. Uh, then we must continue uh, to, to, to maintain a, um, a, a robust accountability system focused on learning, not just rote testing necessarily, but a robust accountability system. And then we must continue. I think eventually the quality of education is based on the quality of the person that's delivering the education. And that that involves making sure that we continue the work toward having highly qualified Um, talent in our Texas public classrooms Mm -hmm. and I think we need to get more teachers of color
3: into our Mm classrooms. the data suggests that um, children of color do well with teachers of color Mm -hmm. and that's that there's all kinds of studies that show that Mm -hmm. so we need to get many more um, (laughs) teachers of color um, into classrooms and push math can't say yes. that enough. Yes. We have to push as much yes. math as we can. Mm-hmm. Make your kids take math. Please, yeah, I,
4: I would add one non-academic thing to that. Studies we don't know how much cognitive loss occurs yes. from trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, our students, for the first time in our, our nation's history, the majority of our K through 12 students mm-hmm. in public schools are living in free and reduced lunch lives. Mm-hmm. All right, so that is a day-to-day trauma that is impacting their ability to learn. So we don't know how bright they are. Because if you are worried about whether or not when you get home there's going to be food, you're not going to focus as much as you would like to on your coursework. You just don't. So we've got to acknowledge that. And I think our schools can do more to engage in a community perspective and help support our students. I think
8: we have time for one last question. Thank you. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to ask a question. I am a counselor at Wynn Elementary here in Austin. I'm on my 13th year as a counselor there. We're a Northeast Austin campus. Uh, We historically have struggled with getting parent involvement, parent engagement. Um, This year we had, and our neighborhood is transitioning uh, since I've been at Wynn. And um, so we have just this year started a pilot program for Montessori in our pre-K three, four, and kindergarten classrooms. And so that has been brought on by initiative from the families moving into the neighborhood more so. But I think it's a great opportunity for all of our students. Um, every year we're going to be adding a grade level to that. Um, my struggle comes with my students of color that I'm trying to you know, talk to them about college. And we start talking in, you know, early on about college. But I see the hopelessness that they have about it, because our students would be first year primarily. Um, so what can I do? And you've spoken to you know, starting early. What can we do? And we have had a high transition of teachers. We tend to have a higher turnover, um, being a Northeast Austin campus, then you might have it a campus where they have students. We have a lot of students in transition, a lot of students who move in and out of the district or schools. So any ideas? Because uh, the, the piece you spoke about with turning outwards really, you, you can, know. Okay. You, can hire my,
3: you can hire my student teachers.
8: <laughs> <laughs> and and you can, we, um, yeah, we have example, and um, um, the principal at Campbell um, was a, he was a teacher at when, when I first started there, and so he was a Houston Tillotson
3: graduate. And y- young people, and thank you for that, and you can keep hiring my student teachers. Yes.
8: <laughs> and young people
3: um, need to see where they're going, mm. and they need to see people who look like them um, mm. to remove what you're, you know, what you're saying is hopelessness. So you have mentees come in and have a, a just a fun afternoon about life. It's the social, emotional, social learning that Michael was referring to. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage you because young people need to see, just even at at the collegiate level, we bring in a lot of people for our students to see
1: where they're going, not where they are. Mm-hmm. And that gives them that hope and that guidance and that future.
8: Mm-hmm. Dr. Lane? Yeah,
1: what, one thing that... Uh, that you can do pretty quickly, and we're doing it at our institution. Mike McGrath, the, the TEA uh, uh, commissioner, commission. uh, and he's here, by the way. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, so he helped us—not that we needed too much help—but partner with some of the lowest-performing schools within a three- to five-mile radius, and these are all the students that you're describing—that uh, just, quite frankly, have never been exposed. Right, first generation. These are, you know never been exposed to the university environment, and I think Michael said it earlier, uh, our institution was designated as a special purpose institution for urban programming in the 63rd legislative session, 1973, and the idea is that each of our schools, education, pharmacy, law, communications, should have some tie in, not just be in the community, but in the community, right, not just, just physically located, but have a connection with our elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools where we actually expose them and work with those teachers. Uh, we, we talk about training teachers going forward. We have over 30% of the teachers that have graduated from uh, our institution and working in Houston Independent School District. And so we have that obligation to help you with your work, right, to help that pipeline continue. Mm-hmm.
2: Sure. Well,
4: can I just one thing? Ahead stop telling them that they're special if they go to college. Mm. Mm. Right? Treat it as an inevitability. Mm. You are going to go to college. You are going to go to graduate mm. school. You're going to be successful. Every day, if you have to start today saying, when you go to college, there you go. when you are a teacher, when you are an investment banker, start speaking these things into their head. Like, we have to normalize success for these students. Mm. Right? And the more that we tell them that it's something exceptional, that most people like you don't make it, yeah. then that, that impacts them in a negative way. Start making them understand that this is my expectation for you. You know, we had never, this is just a simple example, at Paul Quinn, we had never had a student go to, never had a graduate go to an Ivy League institution until this summer. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we started telling them, of course you're going. Mm-hmm. It's not even an option. Mm-hmm. Right? Right? One, success.
3: College president, one thing. We never stop talking about our institutions. I'm first generation. Um, I feel like it should be on my resume. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what it meant until I started working in higher education. Mm-hmm. The fact that the nation is still talking about first generation yeah, is a problem a in and it of itself. Mm-hmm. But I thought college was the 13th grade. I didn't know it was optional until I got there. So I was from a community that made me believe that I was going to college, not an option.